0: Welcome to the first anniversary edition of the Russian Rulers Podcast, Part 2. Last episode, we began our review of the first year of Russian Rulers Podcast from the time of Rurik until the appearance of Grand Prince Dmitry Donskoy, a period of about 500 years. By now, the Mongols had a firm grip on Russia and had settled in and were now called the Golden Horde or the Tatars. Dmitry Ivanovich Donskoy was to be one of the early heroes of Russian history as he not only doubled the size of the territory controlled by Moscow, defeated the Lithuanian invaders, and he began building the Kremlin in Moscow, but he was the first grand prince to defeat the Tatars in battle. The seminal moment was known as the Battle of Kulikova. The Horde had been undergoing an internal struggle for power with a series of civil wars, weakening them, which is the moment that Donskoy seized. He had gathered the other Grand Princes and convinced them that this was the time to fight the Tatars and end the repression of the Russian people. While the battle was a rousing success, it did not succeed in throwing off the Mongol yoke, but it showed future generations that the end was in sight. Dmitry Donskoy died at a young age of 39, no doubt due to the tremendous strains of governing and war. He handed his title of Grand Prince of Moscow to his son Vasily. Vasili I, also known in some texts as Basil, was a brilliant but cautious leader. He continued his father's policy of acquiring land for Moscow. During his long stable reign from 1389 to 1425, he was almost always in conflict with Lithuania and at times with the Golden Horde. Moscow at this time developed an ideology which they believed was a prophecy which revolved around their religion. They believed two things which set them apart from their rival city-states like Novgorod, Pskov, and Tver. They believed that their orthodoxy, their Christianity, was a special chapter in a long unbroken chain of command from Rome to Constantinople, to Moscow. And the second belief was that they, Moscow, and its rulers were God's chosen bearers of this destiny. Six years into Vasili's reign, in what must have been a terrifying sight, a huge Mongol army with the feared Tamerlane at the head invaded Russia. Tamerlane, as he is known to Westerners, or Timur, was a Mongol Khan who wanted to return the tribe to its glory years, and was certainly the most feared man on earth. He was marching into Russia, not specifically to conquer the country, but to battle with his old friend-turned-enemy, Tokhtamayich, leader of the Golden Horde. Tamerlane invaded the Golden Horde's lands and burned the city of Ryazan and headed towards Moscow. Coming within miles of the city, he paused, and with the Russian army nearby, he turned around and headed south, as unbeknownst to the Moscovites, Toktomayich renewed his campaign to the south, so Tamerlane took his army of over a 100,000 men to chase and finally destroy his rival's forces. Falsely thinking that Tamerlane had turned away because of their military prowess, Vasily decided against making any future payments to the Horde. This was not going to go as planned. In 1408, the Horde was back, and their armies devastated the countryside surrounding Moscow, reaching the gates of the city. Vasily, fearing a breach of the city's walls, paid off the leader of the Horde in order to allow him to deal with the pesky Lithuanians and the Principality of Tver. In 1425, Vasily I dies after ruling Moscow for 36 somewhat stable years, leaving his title to his son Vasily II, who was 10 at the time. Looking back at Vasily I's life and rule, it was marked not by all the achievements he accomplished like his father, Dmitry Donskoy, but by the fact that he avoided disaster. His son was not quite so lucky. It is now 1452, and for the first time since the Mongols controlled Russia, a period of over 210 years, the Principality of Kasimov, a Mongol province, pledged loyalty to the Grand Prince of Moscow. This was a sign of things to come as the Golden Horde's holdings were quickly disintegrating. The land holdings were splitting up into separate khanates, with the first being the Crimean khanate, followed by Kazan and Astrahan. It was in 1452 that Moscow finally broke free from the Mongol's yoke, although the formal break was to come in 1480 80 under Vasily's son. When Vasily the Blind dies in 1462 also known as Vasily II. Moscow, that backward-hick town, once ruled by Prince Daniel, youngest son of Alexander Nevsky, had grown to 15,000 square miles from the mere 500 square miles when Daniel first ruled. The person who takes over from Vasily is his 22-year-old son, Ivan III, who is known to history as Ivan the Great. Ivan continues the expansion of Moscow's territory by taking control of Novgorod with its vast holdings being put into his control. Other cities during the years surrounding the defeat of Novgorod also fell under Ivan's iron fist. First Yaroslav, then Dmitrov, and finally Rostov capitulated. By the time Ivan dies in 1505, he tripled the size of Moscow's territory. Ivan expanded east to the frontier of the Khanate of Siberia, He went west to the Ugra and Desna rivers, to the southeast, taking then-Lithuanian towns of Bryansk and Chernogov. Soon he extended his lands just short of Kiev. As for military power, he annexed one prince's private army after another into his ever-growing military force. His armed forces made him the power to be reckoned with. Ivan, whose first wife, Maria of Tver, died suddenly, needed to remarry, and the selection he made solidified Moscow's place as the center of the Orthodox Christian world. He married Zoe Peliolog, who was the niece of the last emperor of Byzantium, Constantine XI. Zoe changed her name to Sophia. embraced a Russian orthodoxy and pushed her husband to grab a hold of the legacy of her uncle and become a great ruler. He turned inward and almost immediately at his wife's behest adopted the imperial double-headed eagle which was the symbol of the Byzantine Empire. The eagles, one looking east and one west, represented the leadership of the emperor or Tsar over both the secular and religious world of his people. Now, the Khan of the Horde demanded Ivan present himself in Sarai and pay the annual tribute. When that failed in 1478, Khan Ahmed demanded all past tributes be paid in full. It was time for war. Ahmed then gathered all of his forces, as did Ivan, and as had happened a hundred years before at the time of Dmitri Donskoy, the armies faced off across a river, this time the Ugra, in the year 1480. Ivan made a deal with one of the competing Khans, which caused Ahmed to abandon the field of battle to rush back to defend his capital. The Mongol yoke was finally broken. Russia was free to create its own destiny. Ivan now had to deal with the Lithuanians, which he did forcibly. Back and forth the battles went, until in 1503 the Russians routed the Lithuanian army at the Battle of Vedrosha River, capturing their military commander. Alexander, the leader of the Lithuanians, had no choice but to reinstate the peace treaty of 1494, but relations were not to improve for quite some time. The Russian military began to modernize under Ivan's rule. They were able to use horses in their cavalry like the Mongols, wear light armor like the Ottoman Empire's mamelukes, build German crossbows and firearms, such as flintlock arquebuses, which were the predecessors to rifles. In Moscow, Ivan engaged in large-scale building projects. He also created a code of law to be used throughout the land. He brought numerous new traditions and ceremonies to Moscow with Sofia, some of which made him seem distanced from the people, styling himself as a real Caesar. Ivan then focused on his successor, his son Vasily. He decided to have him declared co-ruler. Three years after the coronation of Vasily as co-ruler and heir, Ivan the Great, gatherer of the lands of Russia, dies in his sleep. It has been said that few mourned his passing because in some way he had alienated everyone around him and had created numerous enemies. But two concrete things came out of Ivan's reign. One was that the Tsar ruled by divine right, God's will. The second was that his marriage to Sophia and his adoption of the Byzantine ways were able to give ceremonies and rituals that put a distance between the tsar and the people, even the boyars, which carried on all the way to the Soviet era. Vasily III was as ruthless, if not more so, than his father. One law he instituted showed how far he would go to keep things in check. This rule, started but not fully implemented, was one that repealed the right of departure. In the past, if a prince of a city felt he was being mistreated by the Grand Prince, he could leave the protection of the Moscovite prince and ally himself with another country. This happened quite often in the borderlands with Lithuania. What this law said was that defecting from Lithuania to join up with Moscow was all fine and dandy, but going the other way was now going to be viewed as treason, punishable by death and confiscation of all the prince's land by the state. Nearing the end of his life, which came due to an infection, Vasily had two sons born from his second marriage. One he named Ivan after his father, the second was Grigory. On December 3, 1533, Vasily III dies, leaving his three-year-old son to be the heir to the vast holdings of the Grand Prince of Moscow. Ivan the IV, fourth, known to history as Ivan the Terrible, was without a father to guide him which was to have devastating effects on Russia. Next one, and next episode, we catch up on Ivan the Terrible, the time of troubles, and the beginning of the Romanov dynasty. Well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, compilation. As always, please don't forget to visit the uh, Facebook uh, fan club, uh, Russian Rulers uh, History Podcast, and leave a comment, make a suggestion, uh, join our growing family there, and as always, dasvidanya is pasiba bolshoya.